We are ready to go down the highway, so buckle your seatbelts as we get into the book of Acts. As we jump into this, uh, the message, uh, it's a great, great message. Again, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but uh, I like to think about the book of Acts as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, as we get into today's topic, <clears throat> I want to begin with chapter 8 by saying a couple things that uh, I'd like to talk about three unbelievers. Uh, you'll see uh, the story today with uh, Philip and, and Simon Mag- Magus, the magician. Uh, we're going to talk about him, and we'll, then we'll talk next week about the Ethiopian. And then I'm going to pull Paul in there as well, because Paul is at this point an unbeliever. There are three stories of three unbelievers and how God reaches these hearts of the unbelievers. And so keep that in mind as you think about people that you know. But the good news is that the Spirit of God is at work seeking the lost and those who are corrupt, those who are curious, and those who are challenging. But as we get into today's topic, I want to focus on this for a couple of months or a couple of weeks, this week and next week, and then we're going to go into Christmas. I'm going to suspend Paul and pick up Paul after the New Year's and go into the Christmas because I don't want to get into Paul during the middle of uh, Christmas. But we want to look at uh, what it means to be uh, watching God, witnessing God, changing a heart, a human heart, a corrupt heart in, this, in today's message. So let me begin by reading chapter 8, one uh, I'm going to go, I'll read it quickly going 1 through 40 because it's a long, long story. And there are some things with this. So <clears throat> Saul was in hearty agreement with putting uh, Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Some devout men buried St- Stephen and they made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he began preaching Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and they saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city, and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to Simon, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip and observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. 
Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And he ordered... uh, And now when Simon, sorry, verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible that the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Changing a corrupted heart. We have seen last week where the Spirit of God is moving among the unbelievers, and we saw that they've had misplaced loyalties. They've had misplaced loyalties among the Pharisees who trusted the religious system. You found that, that Simon here is using magic to somehow manipulate the spiritual world, and you see Paul wanting this power to punish those who were against him, those who were following Christ. We talked last week about these assumptions, how how when Christ comes in and the Spirit comes in to disrupt our assumptions, our assumptive world, that when we find that, that these circumstances really create a real earthquake in what we believe at the very core of our being. And as Paul watched this church grow, his His faith was being challenged as well because the Spirit of God was doing something. And what the Spirit of God was doing in Stephen, it wasn't doing it in Paul. And Paul was holding on to a a religious system that wasn't making him, changing him, like Stephen and Philip and the other guys had experienced. And yet, this earthquake is what we talked about last week in that when God is at work, I mentioned that if you look at the Christian life, that you'll see that a lot of people, as they approach Christ, they don't understand about the Christian life because there's all kinds of misconceptions about Christ. But to summarize it in this way is that we know that God as the Father is one who reveals himself. He wants to be known, uh, and he personally uh, communicates to each one of us, and that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. And in that message of redemption, that message of the gospel, we understand that not only does he 
redeem us and save us, but there's something more going on because he sends the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to take what Jesus did on the cross and apply it into our lives and so that we are restored. These, this is a little nutshell of the gospel. God reveals, Jesus redeems, and the Spirit restores. Now, I don't know about you, but the way the Christ was presented to me the first time I ever heard the gospel, it was a self-help approach. If you want to follow Jesus and you want, if you want abundant life, Jesus will give you abundant life because he came that you might have life and have it abundantly. It was about what Jesus can do for you to make me feel good. The, I was the end point. It's just the opposite where Christ is the focal point, but I could use God to get my life together. Period. And then you've heard this story, that, that if you hear the gospel presented that uh, you are sinful and you're going to die, and if you don't accept Jesus Christ, you're going to go to hell and burn in hell. So you have a choice to accept Jesus as your Savior burn in, uh, and go to heaven or not accept him and burn in hell. Well, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> you just accept Christ and you go to heaven. But for some people, they understand the gospel as being, I've got hell insurance, fire insurance, I'm not going to go to hell, and my, my salvation is in heaven, so when I die, I'm going to go. So in between time, I'm free to do what I want. And the idea that the gospel is relevant to in between time for a lot of people is not a reality. We've compartmentalized the gospel is saying, well, heaven is when I die. I, I, the gospel is when I get close to death. And when I'm, I'm at that chapter, I'll think about Christ. But I've got my whole life ahead. I don't need to think about the gospel because the gospel is a problem solution. I don't have any problems. I don't need a solution. And people go on. Well, it's crazy. It's crazy because you have to understand the gospel is, is kind of like those two wings of the bird. There's the salvation that we have in Christ. That's what Jesus does on the cross. And you understand the redemption on the cross. But then you have the Holy Spirit who sanctifies and brings the reality of heaven into a personal transformation so that you understand that what Christ did is really personally important for changing who I am as a man or who you are as a woman. Now, the way I understand the gospel is this, that salvation is a, is a restored relationship with Christ, that I come, to, I come to Christ, salvation means I don't have to worry about being shamed or judged because my sin has been taken care of on the cross. That's what Jesus did. He restores and reconciles the relationship. But sanctification, uh, sanctification is an improved relationship. And that sanctification is what the Spirit of God does to improve my relationship. And then glorification, when I die and get to heaven, it's a, it's a perfected relationship. And therefore, as I see, uh, as I see this work of redemption... And you see what God is doing in the book of Acts to help people understand the message of redemption and then to understand the message of restoration. You see what God is doing is something very personal in the stories of these men and women who are finding their loyalties redirected. And therefore the loyalties 
are rightly placed back on Christ. Trust is gently restored. Faith is gradually formed. Hope is focused. And thus love, the love is poured out by the Spirit of God becomes real, genuine, authentic. So the question is, this work of the Holy Spirit, how does God work in a fallen human heart, in a corrupt human heart? Don't I need to be saved to, for that to happen? The answer is no. No, you don't need to be saved because if you need to be saved for it to happen, the condition is that your condition needs to be redeemed as well. God's Spirit works before you get saved. It's called prevenient grace. And so understand that with everyone you meet, every human being that you know, God is calling out because God created them, He loves them, He's calling for them. And so God's Spirit is at work trying to speak to every human being to bring them back to the saving knowledge of Christ. But... There's something wrong with us. We don't respond. And therefore, there's something wrong inside of us. There's something missing. As Timothy, as Paul writes to the Timothy, for that very reason, Paul, which you'll hear later next year, Paul was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense, his, uh, immense patience with me as an example for those who would believe in him and they would receive eternal life. Now to the king, now get this part, because this is the part I want to focus on for a minute. And Paul says, now to the king eternal, to the king uh, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice what Paul says about God himself here. It says God is eternal. It says God is immortal. That's the word we're going to look at for a minute. Immortal. And he's invisible. And it goes on in Timothy. It says uh, in chapter 6, God, the blessed and the, the only ruler, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. God is immortal. And who lives in unapproachable light. And it says, for whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and glory forever again. The idea that God is immortal, that God is holy, that God is God, separate and different from who we are, draws into a teaching of the Bible that says, if God is immortal, meaning not mortal, it means that we, on the other hand, are mortal. And Paul takes this thinking to the Romans when Paul begins to describe those who have been separated from Christ, who've left God, and he says this about men, that they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God, there it is again, for images made to look like a mortal human being. And birds and animals and reptiles, that's the NIV. Now the interesting thing about this word immortal. If you go to the King James, it says he changed the glory of the uncorruptible. Uncorruptible. Immortal, uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. 
and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creepy things. The New American Standard says the same thing, and they exchange the glory of the incorruptible, uncorruptible. The idea is that God can't be corrupted, but man can be corrupted. That there's something in you as a fallen person apart from Christ, you're vulnerable to influences that will destroy you and corrupt you for images and thoughts and philosophies coming up from within, from the flesh, because we are at odds with God. And so the Bible says there's no one, no man uh, that is good perfectly because there's only one immortal God, but we are mortal facing a death. Now this is an interesting word. I want you to hear this because when you think about this word corruption, the word corruption has to do with the fact that there's a war and the resistance to, in every one of us, in you and in me, with a fist raised up against God saying, no way. There is something inside of us that fights, fights. We don't normally trust God easily because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We become corruptible, our Minds are corruptible. Our feelings are corruptible. We, we, we have images and thoughts about God. And so the word corrupt or corruptible is, here's your Greek word for Torah. And it means there's a moral decay. If you are mortal, mortal being related to muerte, death, there is something about being a man or woman that's in the process of dying. That's what mortal means. It means to be corrupted and being able to be changeable, malleable, vulnerable to the influence, subject to decay and death. And you know this because we are all in the process of dying daily, our bodies are breaking down disease. We are mortal. God is immortal. God is not subjected to the same principles of death and disease like we are, except through his son who was murdered on the cross. And so his death was not a natural death. It was one given by corruptible men. You know this word, corruptible, immortal, by this phrase, a very famous verse you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not... What? What? It means you become non-existent. You will perish. You will die. The Greeks thought the soul lives forever. No, no. You are not immortal. You are not an eternal soul. The Bible is very clear that salvation is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. And if you don't have eternal life, you are bound to die and become non-existent. And therefore, the salvation that Jesus came for you was to give you life that it would be an eternal life as a gift of grace and therefore the 
corruptible, the mortal, must put on the incorruption and the immortal. Therefore, when you die, and when your body goes under decay, you are, your physical body will become non-existent, and your life stops. This idea of corruption, that we are mortal, we are corruptible, God is immortal, God is incorruptible, is the hope of our salvation. When 1 Peter 1.21 says, we having been born again, not of corruptible seed, not of a human engineering that's going to be decaying, Christ is the seed that's incorruptible. But we have been born of an incorruptible. We have a life of Christ in us. And therefore, Peter would go on to say that we know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that we were redeemed from a futile, decaying, decrepit, corrupted way of life from the empty way of life handed to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood, as of, as of a lamb, undecayable, without blemish, perfect, incorruptible. Therefore, Peter would go on to say, and hear this word, because it's a great passage for us, and for you to understand, that praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given to us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish. It can never spot. It can never fade. It won't decay. Isn't that good news? Your hope in heaven is sure. And therefore, this, what he says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, reserved, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed to you in the last times. This is great. It means our God is incorruptible. His word is incorruptible. His promise is incorruptible. His son is incorruptible. Did you ever hear that passage in John 14, 30? Right before Jesus went to the cross. Right before, at the end of the table, when, when Judas was going to betray him. Uh, Jesus turned to his disciples and he says, Now my time has come. Let's go. I will not say much more to you. For the prince of the world, notice this, the prince of the world is coming and he has no hold over me. He has nothing within me. Jesus said to the disciples in this little phrase, there is nothing that Satan can do to get me off track from the path of the cross. There's nothing that he can hook me with to destroy me. There's nothing inside of me that will make me yield to this demonic power that says, you're not going to do that, Jesus. Satan tried to, do, to, tried to corrupt him before in Matthew 4, 4. You know the passage in the wilderness. And Jesus would always respond, it is written. It is written. It is written. He's immortal. He's incorruptible. He's perfectly God, able to handle the demonic and the disease and the death because that's who he is. 
That's not who we are. He's immortal. Jesus is Im- uh, Jesus knows about power. You've heard this phrase from Lord Acton, power tends to corrupt, and the absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad. But Jesus knows how to handle corruption. Jesus knows how to handle power. Jesus knows how to handle glory and honor. We don't. We take it to ourselves. And there's a bent. But if Jesus knows how to handle these things, there's something about the way the Lord thinks and the way he he lives his life that is for us. And therefore he said... uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation, no, no opportunity to corrupt you is uncommon to any of us. We are all corruptible. And it's common to all men. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide the way of escape. The incorruptible will help the corruptible get out of the corruption. That's the promise. And therefore, Peter says, through the word of God, through the guidance of the Spirit, through these, he has given us the very great and magnificent promises that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world created by evil desires or lust. You understand what's going on here is when the Spirit of God comes into the child of God and the child of God is in the Word of God, that little baby grows into the man of God. You ever heard that before? Yeah, Sunday school. Understand that there is a spiritual encounter going on and that's what's happening here with this man, Simon. Simon... You know, saw Philip, and when Philip came around, the power that Philip had through the Spirit to heal people, to heal the lame, Philip and the others demonstrated a power that Simon didn't have. What the Spirit did for Stephen, the law couldn't do for Paul. What the Spirit did for, for Philip, uh, Simon didn't understand because there's a power available to these people that... <clears throat> because they were disconnected from Christ, they didn't understand the power of the cross. And therefore, when you understand you sow to the corruptible flesh, you're going to get corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, you get new life in Christ. Well, this idea that Simon was corrupted Uh, we understand that when he saw this, he wanted more than anything this power that these guys had. And he thought that if I just pay them money, these guys are corruptible. I can, maybe they're mercenaries for God. What's your price? And so he went to to Philip and says, I'm going to give you some. He went to Peter and he says, Peter, if you will give me this, I can buy this. There's a manipulation going on that if I can just figure out how to use God for my own personal gain, for my own personal glory. Do you see how corrupt Simon was? He was not interested in Christ. He was interested in the things of Christ for his own glory. 
That's when John Wesley said, even when we repent, our selfishness goes so deep that even our repentance has to be washed in the blood of Christ. We are so self-centered. We're corrupted to the very core. And that's the reason why churches can become corrupt. That's the reason why uh, Christians can become corrupt. That's the reason why leaders can become corrupt. That's the reason why civil leaders can become corrupt. We are corruptible. And the only way you deal with a corruptible for a guy like Simon is to get rid of the corruption. Well, how do you do that? You have to die. You have, God is not out to change corruption. He's out to kill it. He doesn't want to do anything with the corrupt world. He wants to replace it with a new world. And therefore, Paul said, you were taught that in manner with regard to your former way of life, corruptible, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful, self-serving desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Well, Simon didn't want that. Now, here's the tricky part about Simon, which will raise lots of questions for our Sunday school. Simon was baptized. Simon believed, didn't he? And Simon went along with the flow, and he, he liked being caught up with this group. He was in the movement of Christians, and yet, and yet the real question to this passage is, well, how, how did that happen? Can you be baptized and not be changed? Can you be in church and not be saved? Can you be corrupted and not have the Spirit of God touch that corruption and see some kind of evidence that you are a man made new, a woman made new? Sure. If you understand salvation is not just about forgiveness. Salvation is I want to save you from the corruption and bring you into a relational holiness where you love well, that you love without a self-serving agenda that you're using people. People are made to be loved. Things are made to be used. When you start loving things like power, you'll start manipulating your world. You'll start using people. Corrupted. You see what you're invited to, what I'm invited to, what Simon was invited to, but he didn't understand because even though he went through the motions, his heart wasn't touched by the Holy Spirit. And inside Simon, there was a corruptibility that he didn't acknowledge. And therefore he said, you pray for me. He didn't pray for himself. He was always an external man, not an internal man. Well, as we get into this, you understand the question of how do you know when God's touching the corrupted? You shift you shift to a different focus. And this relational holiness, the only way you can tell if a person's been saved is don't look if they've gone through the motions. You look at the life pattern over time, over five years, 10 years, whatever it takes for people to grow out of a self-centeredness into a sense of relational holiness. And what I mean by that, it's when I move towards you with your best, in <clears throat> with your best interests at heart, at my expense, I'm loving you because I'm out of myself. But sinful, self-centered, corrupted responses, I'm moving towards you 
with my best interest at heart at your expense. See, the difference is when you're saved, you're free from your self-centeredness. And God redeems you and makes you a new person. Well, how does he change your corrupt heart? Quickly, you always start with Christ. You always start with your position at the cross. You are saved. You are corrupt, but you are saved because Jesus Christ is your Savior. You focus on Christ. You don't focus on yourself. You don't look at, you look at your position that you are His. No matter what you may experience, you are called by God and you've been saved by the incorruptible God and the promises are there for you. Your position, your assurance, your hope in Christ is where you start at the cross. Then you move into the condition. God works on the human heart, the condition of the human heart to shift. That's sanctification. Now here's the trick. Position influences condition. Condition never influences position. Position influences the condition. But your condition does not influence your position. And therefore, we need to learn as disciples of Christ, as disciples of the Spirit, to run back to the Savior, even though I'm corruptible, and I ask God to change my heart by giving me a new heart, and that's what the promise is in Ezekiel. He will give you a new heart. He will change your orientation to trust Him as He works on your human heart. That's what I call growing in grace. If you are growing in grace, it means this. You learn how to deal with your fallenness and your corruptibility. Understanding God understands that. It's not your sin that he, he's wanting to change. It's your heart for him. And therefore, he's going to call you out into a loving relationship. And by being open to his leading and trusting that he's loving you, counseling you, restoring you, you'll transition off of a focus of self-centeredness into faith in Christ. You'll be focused in the right way, directed in the right way. Well, let me stop here. Come on up, Ryan, with the team. Because the good news is this. God's doing this among the Gentiles. God's doing this among the Samaritans. God's doing this among the pagans. God's doing this among the nations. God's doing it with you and with me. And therefore, when you talk to people who don't believe, listen to see if the Spirit of God is at work in the unbeliever, because he is, and he's using you to help him along. As we will continue next, <clears throat> next week, we'll look again at how God's working in the Ethiopian with one who's curious to, and open to change. Simon wasn't so open. He was after things. But God changes, God changes us from the inside out. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, make, make these words real for us. Take us deep and cause us to meditate on these things as we would hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you, but that word would lift us up to worship you. Again, Father, build your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.